Hello, and welcome to the City Baptist Church Podcast, where our desire is to help others find meaning and mission in following Jesus. 2 Timothy is written by a guy that spent a good chunk of his life persecuting Christians, and then he had this experience. He was a Jewish rabbi. He was a leader of the Jewish religion there in the first century there in Israel. Uh, he was on his way to a city. Actually, he was going to go kill some more Christians. One of his favorite things to do. The guy's name was Paul uh, or Saul. And uh, he has this experience where Jesus, uh, who had died and was risen again, and Jesus uh, called him to himself and confronted him on the road to Damascus. So he becomes a follower of Jesus. And he actually wrote more of the New Testament than any other single person. And he's writing here in this book to one of his protégés to somebody that was a, a learner of him, a younger person that was kind of junior. Maybe you're in a career where you kind of invest in some junior people, or maybe you're one of the junior people in your organization. You kind of look up and you, you know, learn what uh, you need to be doing. To, so here Paul is investing in this younger person. Sometimes we call it discipleship. And this is another leader. He was a pastor actually in Ephesus, and he's just trying to speak into his life. And he references something here in 2 Timothy. Now Paul's in jail. He's about to go to his uh, death, actually. And he references something here in 2 Timothy in chapter number 3. I'll begin reading in verse number 14. But ahead of this, he says, man, there's some bad times coming. It's not, life's not always going to be easy. Don't expect because you follow Jesus to not have pain or suffering or hardship. I mean, he's writing from prison. But then he gets here in verse number 14 and he says, But continue thou. That's how you respond to bad things happening. But continue thou. Don't give up on it. But continue thou, he says, in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We're going to take some time this morning, and it's a little bit different of a morning schedule, but we're going to focus our time on the New Testament. Really, when we come to church, we don't usually uh, talk about the Bible so much as from the Bible. That's really what we come for, and yet we're going to take some time today. We're going to talk about the Bible. Now, Christianity is we worship God, our faith is in God, and yet Scripture informs that. The Bible is... A lot of things. Sometimes we refer to the Bible and we use different metaphors. I've heard people say that if you're going to have a good marriage, if you're going to have a good uh, home, if you're going to raise your kids right, you got to read the owner's manual. They refer to the Bible as an owner's manual. And, I, I, you know, that's interesting. It uh, maybe has some points, I suppose. People refer to it as a lot of different things. But at the end of the day, the Bible is not about me. And the Bible is not about you. The Bible was written about God but it is to us. So that's what we have in the Word of God. It's a record of God's redemption throughout history, and it's written to us. And as a Christian, it's a really big part of, of our faith. It's a really part of, big part of what it means to be a community of Christians in a local church and all of that. So we want to take some time today and we want to look at what do we do when people don't maybe believe the Bible? And we took some time, some of you were there over the weekend, we talked about arguments for God's existence earlier this weekend. 
For example, the Bible says that you don't need a Bible to know that God exists. The Bible says God gave good reasons to believe in Him that aren't even recorded in the Bible. And go beyond that. And sometimes you see that in nature. We talked about one argument where everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Well, people are like, okay, well, yeah, that kind of seems to say that God's very likely. How do we know that it's the Christian God? How do we know that Jesus was the Son of God? And those are very real questions. And that's really where we're going to focus on with our time this morning. So I've got a, a couple slides, a lot of slides actually that we'll go through as we're here. And I hope, hope this isn't a little bit overwhelming, but we want to walk through three different aspects of Scripture. And uh, the first two aspects are a little bit, uh, how should we think about the Bible, or how can we show what we believe about the Bible? And then the last part is, now what do I do with it? What does this mean to me as a Christian? Or even as a person that doesn't know if I believe yet or not, what does it mean what we learn today? So the first point that I want to make is that the Bible records real events. There's a lot of people that say, you've got history, you've got science, you've got archaeology, and then over here you've got the Bible. That The Bible is a book of theology. The Bible is a book about, uh, the Bible is a book that tells me about what to believe. And over here I've got, you know, the facts and the science and everything else. Well, the reality is, most of the Bible is not really written as a theology book. It's really written as a record. In fact, there's a lot of scriptures. You can talk about the Rig Veda, or you can talk about any number of scriptures that tell people a lot about what to believe, and that's included in scripture. But Christianity is really unique among all other groups in the world. And there's so many ways that it's unique. But here's one of them. One of them is, when you read the Old Testament, what you're reading about is God interacting with the patriarchs and the, the people of the Old Testament. You read about Abraham, you read about Moses, you read about the children of Israel, and these are all historical accounts. When you get into the New Testament, you're reading a record of events in the New Testament era, in the first century. In fact, it's so important that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if what we believe about the resurrection isn't true, if the historical claims of the Bible aren't accurate, Christianity isn't valid. So Christianity is based on this fact that the Bible records real events. And there's several different ways that we can see this. And the first is, Scripture tells us that. Now this isn't, for a Christian, the only thing we have to go on. It's not merely, I believe the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible says it. Because the Quran says that, and the Book of Mormon says that, and the uh, Vedic text would indicate that, and all kinds of other scriptures in the world. But I think it's important that the Bible would say at least that it is divine scripture, if it actually is, and it does. We read this this morning. Uh, just a moment ago, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. What does that mean? That means that God actually had a part in the writing of scripture. Now there's a lot of writing that we can do. Uh, all of us in the room have probably written. Maybe you've had to write. Anybody have a, a, a time in your life where you had to write a certain number of pages? Um, I am primarily a teacher. I work at a college and uh, I assign papers and sometimes I say this paper ought to be at least 
five pages long. And it's amazing. Sometimes when you get a paper and you've got a lot of prepositional phrases and a lot of long block quotes and people are like, five pages, done, you know, and they turn it in and, and, and they're trying to write something down and it's their thoughts or it's their research. And sometimes, you, you know, you mark up a spelling errors or a footnoting error or something. But when we get to scripture, what we see in scripture is that unlike any other writing, this is something that God worked with. It wasn't mere human authorship. The Bible says that this is God's word. Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It really comes from God himself. The apostle Peter later on in the New Testament is writing and he says, here's how it worked. Holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And that word moved means to carry something. Have you ever carried something heavy? Uh, maybe you uh, are picking up after church. This is a room that during the week is used for different things. So somebody, I, didn't, I, I don't know who, is going to take this piano and they're going to move it afterwards. There's probably a closet somewhere. There's somewhere where it goes. They're going to pick it up and they're going to carry it. And the Greek word in, uh, Peter uses is pharaoh. It means to pick up and to carry somewhere. And here's what the Bible says. God carried, God moved those who wrote Scripture so that the outcome is exactly what God would have desired. So we see that Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is given by inspiration. But how do we know it's true? Sometimes people that don't believe the Bible, they say, well, that's what you believe because you're a Christian. You're supposed to believe that, but I'm not a Christian and I don't believe that the Bible is actually inspired. Now, since I believe it's inspired, I believe it's an error, and I believe that there's no fault in it, but at a minimum, we can show this. It's actually accurate. What the Bible records really happened, and we're focusing on the New Testament today, so we'll see lots of that. But first, we want to affirm that the Bible is historically accurate. And this is interesting. I probably should have given some more notes. I know I've got a lot on the screen here, but the Bible is historically accurate. And here's amazing. Every time you can take the Bible and test its accuracy, it has always been proven true. Yeah. Time and time and time again throughout history, people have said, well, that part of the Bible is not true, and that part of the Bible is not true. There are so many examples in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that people said, I don't believe that. The only reason you believe that as a Christian is because it's in the Bible. And Christians for years have said, yeah, but that's enough. Because the Bible is true. But if you don't believe the Bible, people doubt that or people say that that's not probably valid. Well, here's what we've seen over the last 200 years and more. As we've discovered more and more about the ancient world, there's less and less of the Bible that has yet to be collaborated with secular accounts. We could give a dozen examples. I'll give you a few here on the screen. One of them is this person in the New Testament called Caiaphas. One of the high priests during the time of Jesus was named Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was, of course, not a friend of Jesus. We know that the Jews were a part of killing Jesus and conspired to get him executed by the Romans. And uh, the Jews had this uh, pattern, this thing that uh, a lot of ancient cultures there in the Middle East did, and they called it an ossuary. Now, an ossuary is a limestone box that you'd put somebody's bones in. Here's how it worked. If you died in the first century or before or shortly after that, there weren't a lot of places people could be buried. In fact, poor people weren't often buried at all. They just took poor people or beggars or people that were maybe didn't have status in society or wealth. They would 
throw them out of the city sometimes into the place that they called Gehenna. And it was like this trash heap and it was on fire a lot of times and they just throw bodies out. And that happened to a lot of people that weren't uh, wealthy or weren't established in society. But if you were of a family of importance, if you were maybe privileged or had money or you were somebody in that society, you had a family tomb. You read about this in the Old Testament and the New Testament and uh, other nations around, the Amorites and the Hittites and many other groups did this. So you had a tomb and if somebody passed away, you would take that body and you would wrap it up typically. Not They would mummify like the Egyptians, but they would wrap it and they would put spices and myrrh and some oils and then they'd lay it in the tomb and then they'd cover it with a rock, make sure it's sealed. And the reason they do that is you wouldn't want a dog carrying around a part of the bone of your loved one. You wouldn't want a vulture to be in there. You wouldn't want thieves to get in there. So they'd secure the tomb and they would let the body rest. Well, a couple years later, we know this is a part of human existence. Someone else in the family might pass away. So then what they would do is they'd go back into the tombs and the Romans later called them the catacombs and they would go into there and they would, they would open up the tomb and they would look in at where they laid grandpa, uh, Zebediah, or whoever he was. So they look, and they, and they had laid in an entire corpse, and they had all this cotton or linen cloth, and all of that had rotted away, and the bugs had eaten it up, and all that was left were the bones. The skeleton would have still been there. And they would collect it and put it in a box. They would have little holes chiseled in the side, and they would slide the ossuary into the side and make room for the newly deceased member of the family. And Jews did this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and many other groups of people did this as well. And they would inscribe into the box whose bones were in it. And they would say a couple generations of ancestry, so you could trace it on the lineage, and the Jews were very big into knowing who their grandpa and great-grandpa and great-ancestors were. And this was one that was discovered, I think, shortly after the 1970s, maybe in the 1980s in Jerusalem, East Jerusalem. They were building a new apartment complex and over there everything is old and everything is important so they always bring in an archaeological team what they found was shocking they found a limestone box that had all of the family moniker and the names and the ancestry that aligned exactly with, jo with uh, the high priest of Caiaphas in the New Testament so what you're looking at is a picture of the box containing the remains, the only person of the, old, of the Bible anywhere that we actually have their physical remains. It's incredible. The bones of Caiaphas are known. Now, isn't that an ironic position? That the one who helped conspire to execute the Messiah, his body is still with us today. But the Messiah, who was buried as a result of that conspiracy, that tomb is empty. But here we have the bones of somebody that had conspired against Christ. There was a time in history when people said that Pilate didn't even exist. That Pilate was manufactured in the New Testament. This was said of so many different people. This was said of, uh, of kings of, of Silas. And it, you see that in Acts chapter 20. You see uh, the Hittites were doubted. There's just so many examples. One of them was Pilate. And then they found in Caesarea a port city by the Sea of Galilee, they found an inscription that talked about Pilate. Now several more have been found. And in 2018, I was able to see it personally. This is the Pilate inscription. 
It verified from secular history what the Bible had affirmed all along. Now, I could take the rest of the day to walk through another 20 or another 100 examples of this, but there's a pattern here. And the pattern is that the Bible is historically accurate over and over again. A second incredible point is the Bible is, his, is scientifically accurate. Now, the Bible's not a book about science, but you know what? When it says something relevant to science, it's true. Some people doubt it, like the Bible's a theology book. What can you learn from science? Well, I don't go to the Bible to learn science. But I'll be honest, if the Bible says it, I believe it. And one of the reasons is, is when you can test something in Scripture, you can see that it's always going to be scientifically accurate. Quick story on that. I was in my office one day, and my, my cell phone rang, and I picked it up. And the voice at the other end, by the way, I don't answer phone calls that I don't have their, vo their number in my uh, contacts a lot anymore. But I, I, I answered this guy, and he said, hey, my name's Robert. I said, hi, Robert. <laughs> Do I know you? He's like, no, you don't know me. One of your students gave me your cell phone number. Like, oh, I need to talk to my students about that. I was like, okay, Robert, what can I do? He said, well, I'm an atheist. I understand that you're a Christian or you're an apologist, and we ought to go out and meet. And I've got a real heart for reaching atheists. My dad used to be an atheist before he got saved. Now he's a pastor, and I've got a lot of people that I, I, I love talking to atheists. And I said, yeah, let's go get some coffee. So we, went and we got some coffee. And one of the questions he asked is, Toby, why would you believe that the Bible is actually written or inspired by God? And of the hundred answers I could have probably given him, the one that I chose to give him was a passage in Job that has always fascinated me. Job chapter 38 and verse 16. God writing to Job, we read from Job this morning, and God writes or, or this account of conversation. God asked Job, Has thou entered into the springs of the sea? Now I knew what a spring was. I lived in Minnesota. We had freshwater springs in the hills sometimes, and yet springs in the sea? Is there springs under in a submarine environment? Well, we knew of none for hundreds and hundreds of years, but in the 1970s we discovered that there is underwater fountains of water, that in the ocean, which is of course salty, you've got freshwater springs in the sea. So I showed that to Robert and I said, look at this, the Bible talks about springs in the sea and we didn't even discover those until the 1970s. And he looked at that and he looked at me and he looked back at scripture and he said, Toby, you don't really think that's talking about springs, do you? Even though it's what it said. And I said, Robert, what do you think it's talking about? You think it's talking about the boing, 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 a metal spring? Like, what is it talking about? Springs in the sea. There's a picture of an underwater spring in the sea. And we could go over and over. The Bible indicates the oh, world is a sphere in Isaiah. The Bible talks about the, the best day for uh, circumcision where Prothorben peaks in the eighth day. That's in Genesis. You've got a passage in Scripture that talks about the, the way of light. You've got all kinds of passages in Scripture that are historically and scientifically accurate. The Bible scientifically accurate. It's historically accurate. It's archaeologically accurate. Now, this is fascinating. You take a book like the Book of Mormon that talks about the North American history of the Jews. 
say, really? I didn't know the Jews were ever in North America. Yeah, none of us did until Joseph Smith kind of had this revelation. <laughs> and we got this Book of Mormon. Is this whole story translated from these spiritual golden plates and that we don't have those anymore either. And this whole story unfolds and you're supposed to have all these Jewish people in North America and all of this history. And, and there's no city that it mentions it's ever been found. There's no inscription in Hebrew that's ever been found. There's no Reformed Egyptian, the supposed language of these golden plates that's ever been found. Over and over and over again, there's no evidence at all. When you get to Scripture, though, what we have found is consistently there's so many of these evidences. Let me give you kind of a story, and then I'll give you some illustrations. There's a guy, his name was Sir William Ramsey, and he didn't believe the Bible. He was alive in the 1800s, and he was one of the early pioneers in the archaeology of that area in the Middle East. But he, he wasn't a Bible believer. He didn't believe the Bible was accurate. But he started taking the Old Testament, and he started looking at the description of cities. I don't know when you did this. I did this probably in sixth grade or seventh grade. Do you remember when you've got in geometry and in grade school, where you've got two points, you've got a compass, and you've got a ruler, and you've got those pencils, and, and you remember kind of drawing a little arc and a little arc, and you measure. Here's what he did. He took account, maybe there's a city, and it says it's three days journey from here, and then it's five days journey from here, and he just took a map. He was like, well, I know where this city and this city is, so this other city should be Three days journey, five days journey, it should be about here or about here. They would cross at two points, right? So he'd go out there and he'd take a team out into the desert and he'd put a shovel in the sand and he'd start investigating and time after time after time, there was a city over and over again. And Sir William Ramsey did incredible study in Luke's writing and Acts and he actually died a believer in the accuracy of the New Testament because of the research. Because of what he did, his view had been changed. There's so many examples of that that we can see. I've got a couple pictures from a recent trip that I was able to take with some college students to uh, Israel. And this is an incredible passage. In 2 Kings, it talks about a conduit that was made by Hezekiah back thousands of years ago. If you lived in a wall city, kind of like a castle. The danger would be if somebody put a siege on your city, you'd run out of food. But before that, you'd run out of water. And it's very important to have a source of water. So outside of Jerusalem, that current wall, where it, or the old wall, there was a pool, the Pool of Siloam. And now it's inside one of the newer walls. But he, took a, he took a, did a conduit. This is over a quarter of a mile through solid rock from opposite directions. One of the, it's like the Great Pyramid of Egypt. It's an engineering masterpiece. And they chiseled through solid rock from opposite directions until they met. Now... This was recorded in Jewish scriptures for millennia. You're looking at the passage, Second uh, Kings 20 and verse number 20, describes this conduit made by Hezekiah. And this picture that you're looking at is me and my team walking through the conduit. If you go to Jerusalem today, maybe some of you have been there, you can walk through this. You know what the most incredible thing is? There's still water flowing from the pool into the city. In fact, we walked through in June. It was very, very hot, a couple days over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And as we were walking through, I was a little bit taller than some, but it would be getting our shorts wet. And sometimes you'd take a step and it went up a little bit. And those that were shorter and had anxiety from close spaces, they didn't like that experience so much. You walk through that, it's a conduit spoken of in the Bible that we can see still there today. 
This is the Garden of Gethsemane. We read about this in Matthew chapter 26 where Jesus prayed. And you can see the olive trees here. They're not the exact same olive trees, but probably seeds of seeds of the olive trees that were there when Jesus prayed there in the garden. This is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It talks about Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is where Barak and Deborah, actually several really important things, not far from Gideon's story as well, if you know that. And uh, Judges chapter number 6. If you see that little mound there, if you look past that, that would be the Mediterranean Sea. We're standing near the Mount Precipice here. And if you look left, that's Mount Tabor. It's spoken of in the Old Testament multiple times. You go there and you look, it's exactly where it's supposed to be. This is where Peter lived. This is on the shore of Galilee. This is Capernaum. There's an ancient church there that some people think Peter might have pastored for a while. There are oil presses and olive presses and a lot of the things that were a part of that early society still there today. Back in Jerusalem, there's the Pool of Bethesda where the biblical account of Jesus' miracles happened. And for, for centuries, it was under tons and tons of debris and dirt and was invisible or not, not known where it was. Now it's been excavated and you can see all of the dirt that's been taken out. And it is evidence today that it actually existed. Chuck Colson said the Bible's historical account is a reminder that while the heavens declare the glory of God, there's plenty of evidence in the rubble and ruins as well. Scripture not only is historically accurate, scientifically accurate, archaeologically accurate, it's written by eyewitnesses. And this is important. In fact, we talked about this over the weekend. Somebody says, okay, yeah, Jesus existed. I can't deny that. By the way, you can't deny that. Atheists believe that Jesus existed. Somebody said, somebody told me, uh, if somebody doesn't believe in Jesus, do you, if they don't believe Jesus even existed historically. Do you call them an atheist? And I said, no, if somebody believes Jesus didn't exist historically, I call them uninformed. <laughs> it's just ignorance. It's not possible to maintain that. You talk to, look, look it up, atheists accept Jesus existed because there's so much evidence for it. But, but people say, yeah, yeah that, that may be true. The problem is, the New Testament was written so many years later. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Dan Brown. Uh, but Brown wrote a book, The Da Vinci Code, a movie as well. And there's this story a lot of people kind of seeped into culture that Jesus was just a good person. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't the son of God. Just a good person, kind of a revolutionary. And the Romans killed him. And then hundreds of years later, this account was written maybe by Constantine, maybe around the time of the Council of Nicaea. They determined an orthodoxy and the scriptures were kind of curated. And there were all these different competing views and all of these uh, contemporary accounts that were different than what we now think of as Jesus and the claim of Jesus. And, and that hundreds of years later, the story was kind of pieced together. Well, if that is true, that would be kind of problematic. I don't know your history as much as I know the United States, but the United States has been around for over 200 years. Our first president, we talk about George Washington. If no one had ever written down the history of George Washington, and now 200 years later, somebody decides, I heard a story from my grandpa who heard it from his grandpa who heard it from his grandpa who heard it from his grandpa. Let's write some of this down. 200 years later, what's the chance that's going to be pretty accurate? 
we're going to have so much legend, we're going to have so much error, so many missing details in that, because if all I have is oral transmission for hundreds of years, that's not a very accurate account, is it? Is that possible for the New Testament? Not at all. How do we know that the New Testament was written while there were still people alive who saw the events? Well, one, and it's just not on the screen, but one reason is the Bible says so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the writer of Scripture says, Paul again in 1 Corinthians, says that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to 500 people at one time. By the way, that's not a hallucination. <laughs> 500 people at one time. And he says some of them have died, but most of them remain. So what he's saying to the people he's writing this letter to is, I have eyewitnesses if you want to investigate. In fact, the Gospel of Luke is written, we'll talk about that specifically, to people who were eyewitnesses. Now, there's a really big event in the New Testament that happened in 70 A.D. I have a picture of it, of the remains of it. This pile of rubble is a picture I took just with my cell phone. We were walking down the streets in Jerusalem, and the guide said, Oh, yeah, and that pile of stones is the rubble from the old temple that Titus destroyed. <laughs> I said, Hold on, i got to go back and get a picture of this. That's one of the most important things that ever happened in history. So here's the pile of ruins from the old temple. Here's, here's why that matters. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., but it's not referenced in Scripture. There's some prophecies, but no one ever said it happened. Now, here's why that matters. If you were reading a book about financial leaders in New York City, and they were in stock exchange or in international trade, and it references the World Trade Centers, the Twin Towers, and they had friends in that industry, and they went in and out of the towers, and it even talks about the towers in the book. You're reading a biography but you don't know when it was written, the title page is torn out, so you don't know the copyright date. At the end of that book, if there's no mention of 9-11 and the terrorist attack, you could reasonably conclude the book had been written prior to that. Well, that's the New Testament. We've got this incredible destruction of the temple, one of the most important events for the Jewish people, and it's never mentioned as being fulfilled. It's not only that event. Look at what else. We've got the on the screen the death of James. Paul and Peter were all in the first half of the 60s A.D. None of their deaths are recorded in Scripture. All of them significant figures in the New Testament church and spoken of in the book of Acts. You've got the persecution of Nero. You've heard of Nero? This awfully sadistic person who burnt Rome blamed the Christians for it, and persecuted and killed many that were there in the area of Rome. Now, we all know that that's true. All historians accept that that actually happened, but the Bible never talks about that. Where in the Bible do you read about Nero? Where in the Bible do you read about this terrible persecution at Rome? We know it happened, but why, is it mentioned, why isn't it not mentioned in the Bible? And the answer is because the Bible was written so early it hadn't happened yet. Everything we know of Nero's persecution of the Christians is 100% from secular sources or extra-biblical writings. And yet in Scripture, all of these events are unmentioned. Acts doesn't mention these events. Luke is the one that wrote Acts, and he wrote a gospel prior to writing Acts. You see in Acts chapter 1, he references the former book that I wrote, the former treatise, Old Theophilus. You go to the beginning of Luke, he says, at the beginning of Luke, that others had already written about the ministry of Jesus. 
So if Acts doesn't include these because it was written so early and Luke was written before that in the 50s, and there are other scriptures like Mark and Matthew that already preceded the Gospel of Luke, now you've got the New Testament story of Jesus being written around uh, maybe late 40s or early 50s. Now, the idea that the miracles didn't occur, that Jesus' claims to deity were made up later, that the Bible wasn't a historical accurate, it completely falls apart when you realize how early it was written. Because it was written within the lifespan of the eyewitnesses of its accounts. And when you realize that, you see that the Bible is absolutely accurate. Now, not only is the Bible given accurate, not only is it a true account, it also has been kept for us without being lost. You see, we don't have the Bible today uh, in its original autograph. In fact, there's really four different stages that the Bible goes through. If you've got a Bible like I do this morning, it isn't exactly as it originally came. So there's four different stages. Let me talk about this real quick. The first stage is an autograph. How many of you have an autographed something? Do you have a hat? Uh, I don't know, hockey puck? <laughs> yeah, autograph hockey pucks? Yeah. I have an autograph uh, jersey, a sports jersey, or a card, or maybe a book. You met the author, you stood in line, they signed it for you. So you have an autograph, what does that mean? That means like the actual author, the person, the sports, the, the celebrity wrote on it, right? So when scripture was originally given and inspired, there is one original autograph for every part of scripture. Well, an autograph is given through a process of inspiration. Then we've got manuscripts, and I thought about bringing a, a copy of a manuscript, and I didn't have a place in my luggage to bring it. I've got some images of them, but if I had a manuscript, this is a copy. So somebody took the original autograph, and they made copies of it. Have you ever made a handwritten copy of something? It's been a long time for me. I remember growing up, I remember going to somebody's house, my mom would be like, man, that was a great recipe. I need to get a copy, and they'd get a three-by-five card. <laughs> in a pen, and they'd lay the recipe down, they'd lay the three by five car, and they'd write it down. Now what would you do? you just take a picture of it, right? But they couldn't do that then. They didn't have cell phones, all that. They'd wrote, write a copy down. That's how the Bible was transmitted. Over and over and over again, it was copied and copied, and you've got all of these manuscripts. And then, around the time of the Renaissance, shortly after the Renaissance, people started getting a lot of manuscripts together and they would kind of curate them and put them together and they would make a text. And a text is where you, you overlap these manuscripts. Most of them are just one book or a part of a book or a couple books, not the whole New Testament. And you put them together and you make, a manu you make from the manuscripts a text. And this is something we call textual criticism. And a lot of scholars work with textual criticism. They put this together. And then from that, you get a modern language version. That's what we enjoy, right? If you don't want to take the time to learn Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, like some people have, but most of us don't want to. We don't need to, to have the Bible. We've got the Bible in our language, right? Why? Because somebody translated it. So you've got all of these stages that Scripture went through, and in each stage, God's sovereign hand guided providentially so that we today have His Word. Now, I believe that as a Christian, but how do I know that? How do I know that that is true? Well, there are so many reasons why we know that that's true, but a couple illustrations is just looking at the ancient manuscripts. We today have over 5,800 ancient Greek manuscripts. 
In fact, just last year, we found another manuscript of the book of Mark. The year before that, we found a couple manuscripts of the epistles. Really, every year we find a couple more. We're still discovering these. In fact, uh, uh, Josh McDowell bought this mask that they use for an Egyptian mummy, and he took it to some specialists, and they peeled off like paper mache, layer after layer, and he found within that ancient copies of the book of Mark. It was just so cool. One of the older copies of Mark that we've ever found. And we're continually finding more of these. Someday, by the, in, in 10 years, this number is going to be 6,000. And then it's going to be 6,100. We find so many of these ancient manuscripts. 5,800 and counting. Not only that, you've got 19,000 ancient translations in the Syriac, the Peshitta, the Old Latin, all of this before the time of Constantine in the first several hundred years. You've got thousands of translations and thousands of copies of those translations that we still have in museums and private collections archived today. In fact, this isn't even on the screen, but if we lost all of the manuscripts for the entire New Testament, we could reconstruct it entirely. There's 11 verses we'd be missing. Only from how the early church fathers and Christians quoted the Bible when they wrote each other personal letters. 11 verses. But other than that, the entire New Testament could be constructed. So you've got, translate, you've got ancient translations. You've got ancient documents. You've got these quotations from the church fathers. You've got all of these streams of evidence that come together into one dominating, overwhelming conclusion that we today have the most accurate ancient writing ever. Right. An illustration of that shows behind me on the screen the length of time between the original writing and the oldest copy on the right of the screen is very small for the New Testament. If you're comparing with Aristotle, Plato, the, the Odyssey uh, or Iliad of Homer, at least a half millennia. The New Testament, 50 years tops. John was probably the last gospel written. The oldest manuscript we have in the New Testament is of the Gospel of John, the John Ryland's fragment, it's called, P52, dated by even liberal and unbelieving scholars to 125 AD. Well, that's well under 100 years of Jesus himself in less than a half century of it being written. So we've got a very small period of time between the oldest documents and the actual autographs. And the number of manuscripts we have, which you see on the left, is overwhelmingly more than any other ancient document. We have thousands and thousands. As you can see, this number isn't even updated to the 5,800 because it increases so frequently. What does this mean to me as a Christian? I've got this this historical accuracy, scientific accuracy, archaeological accuracy, early writing, this wealth of the Greek manuscripts, what does it mean for me as a Christian? I'll go quick, but boy, this is important. I'll give you a couple practical applications of what we've said today. First one is, Scripture declares God's redemptive acts. See, Scripture tells us what God has done and why God has done it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Bible says, For the preaching of the cross. And by the way, that word preaching is the word logos, the logos of the cross, the word of the cross, the message of the cross, the, the, which we declare with our lives and with our mouths in church and out of church. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved it is the power of God. That comes from the word of God. Scripture instructs His children how to live. That's me and that's you, probably if you're a follower of Christ here today. Psalm 119 says, The entrance of thy words give light and understanding unto the simple. 
Number two, Scripture provides hope for our futures. This is where we draw our strength as a Christian. The fact that you can look back and see God has done all of this throughout history, and He's done all this for His people in the Old Testament, and He's, done, he's fulfilled all of these prophecies, and yet there's some prophecies unfulfilled. And there's some promises that we haven't realized, and we're in between the promise and the fulfillment in our lives today. And it gives us hope. The Bible says in Romans chapter 15, For whatsoever things were written before time were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And then we see Scripture builds our faith in Romans chapter 10. The Bible says, So that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Again, the Word of God here is including a Scripture, but the word in Greek is the rhema of God. It's the message. It's the teaching. It's the, the principles. It's the, the Word of God that we have. That's where our comfort is. That's where our faith is built. And then, finally tonight, or this morning, we see that Scripture equips us to live as disciples, and it brings us all the way back. We started in 2 Timothy chapter number 3, and you see here in verse number 17, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Hey, all good works, that all is pretty inclusive, right? This is encompassing every aspect of what we need. The Bible is sufficient for you and to me to live the Christian life. Guess what? There's a lot of truth about God the Bible doesn't contain. God's infinite. The Bible's big. If you've ever tried to read through it, but it's not infinite, right? And you know what the Bible says is the Bible gives us what we need to follow God in this generation. The world changes. Uh, kingdoms rise and fall. I read this last week that kingdoms and political organizations are systems built by dying men to replace those of dead men. Everything in this world is changing and it's decaying and it's in flux. And, and yet we today are called to stand on and with the Word of God. And what it tells us is that God's past work is but a taste of God's future work. And we're a part of that. I was reading this morning in Romans chapter number 8 where the Bible says if you have the Spirit that God used to rise Christ up from the dead. He will quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth within you. That's our future as Christians and our confidence as Christians based on the Word of God. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.